Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, the last time we talked, I believe, was Thursday, and the NBA and its players were just putting together, um, or putting back together, I, su- I should say, the NBA bubble after a you know shutdown caused and triggered by the Milwaukee Bucks' decision not to take the court last Wednesday. They put things back together, I got to say, in in a pretty remarkably quick fashion. Games resumed on Saturday. Teams are now being eliminated left and right. We are almost ready to commence uh, the final eight, the the second round of the playoffs here. We should have that field set, I believe, by no later than Wednesday, Michael. So it's all happening. I want to get into some of the discussion about um, the decision the Bucks made, how it was received by their peers, um, what kind of initiatives the players looked to get from the owners before they got back on the court. But before we do that, I think we had a real headlining game late last night between the Denver Nuggets and the Utah Jazz. And I think you and I, or, or maybe just I, I jokingly said, oh, this is the series that everyone's going to be ignoring. No one's going to care about that flyover mountain time zone. Okay, idiot, completely wrong. This has been one of the most entertaining head-to-head playoff duels we've seen in a long time. Last night, Jamal Murray went for 50 points, five rebounds, six assists. It didn't feel like he missed a single shot all night. He shot 17 for 24 from the field. 9 of 12 on 3, 7 of 9 from the free throw line. That was to outduel Donovan Mitchell, who had his third 40-point game of the series with 44 points, 6 rebounds, 5 assists on 9 of 13 threes, 14 of 25 from the field. So these guys are just going absolutely bonkers. That's This is setting up a Game 7 between these two teams. Michael, did you watch the game? Did you see Jamal Murray's just unbelievable uh, post-game uh, interview with Jaron Greenberg of TNT? Incredibly raw and emotional. Did you see the picture of him, 
you know, doubled over, exhausted uh, in the tunnel back to the locker room, looking like just emotionally spent um, after a long night. What did you make of the scene? Um, an unbelievable performance all around. Yeah, on so many different levels that you just covered, Ben. Uh, let's start with just him on the court. I mean, it's so funny. I was thinking about our conversation after the Luca performance, our, our Luca pod, which we dedicated to him. And we were discussing what players, uh, young players that we would put in the conversation with Luca in terms of, you know, future ceiling, if you could start a franchise with, et cetera. And we never mentioned Jamal Murray. And no, we didn't because you got hung, hung up on Tatum. You know, as soon as you could throw one of your children into the mix, it was like, all right, conversation over. But um, yeah, I think that we close that conversation down pretty quickly. Are mm-hmm. you trying to reopen it to a guy like Jamal Murray now? I mean, I don't want to say that Jamal Murray is better than Luca or anything like that. But we definitely, it was a short shrift situation. Like Jamal Murray's doing things that just it, forget about his age. Just like players don't do this. Three straight 40 plus point performances, two 50 point performances in the series. And he just, he's hitting shots that like contested step back threes, step back twos, off balance runners, floaters that make no sense. Uh, what shots about the, that, the 360 layup with the reverse English on the backboard. Yeah, I mean, that was yeah. maybe the coolest shot of the entire uh, the entire bubble outside of a couple of the, the buzzer-beating game-winning three-pointers, but that shot was ridiculous. Absurd, and he's doing it all against a respected defense to boot. And like a lot of the time when he goes into the paint, the guy who he's, who he's up against is Rudy Gobert. So Murray has been just like totally phenomenal. And, you know, he had a couple dud games earlier in this series, but he's more than made up for it. Uh, I can't really think of a more just like clutch player who's like when Jamal Murray is like in the zone, there's really nothing you can do about it. I mean, you could trap him, but because Jokic is on his team, you can't because like he'll just give the ball to Jokic and then all of a sudden you're in a four on three with the best passing center in the history of basketball. So you can't double him. He's hitting shots in one-on-one coverage that don't even make sense and defy physics. I I, I mean, there's really nothing more to say about it. I, I cannot wait until game seven. Him versus Donovan Mitchell has been one of the most exciting one-on-one matchups that we've seen in recent memory. No, it was the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat the other night. I mean, you saw how personally Donovan Mitchell took that loss. I mean, straight mm. to the heart. Um, that's what we love sports, you know, just the that level of competition. Two guys very evenly matched, giving it their best back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. You love to see it. With Murray, you know, I'm I'm kind of curious here, uh, Michael, because every once in a while on this podcast over the year, over the months, really, you've tried to sort of, you know, take <laughs> over control every once in a while. You know, you've tried uh-huh. to sneak yeah. in and try to drive the conversation, and and maybe you want to, you know, shift gears here and there, and it always uh, puts me back on my heels when you do that. I'm wondering, is there a parallel? Did Jamal Murray just jack the Denver Nuggets? from Nikola Jokic. Is this now Jamal Murray's team, not Nikola Jokic's team anymore? And people like to compare me to Jokic and the physical resemblance. I'm not sure if it's still there. But what struck me in this series in particular, you have two very well-regarded centers, guys who have been franchise players for their organizations for the last five years, right? I mean, the, the Nuggets have built everything around Jokic. The Jazz, um, once Hayward left, that's Gobert's team, and they're trying to build it in his mold. Those guys have been 
supporting cast members in this series, right? Not that they're not playing important roles, but yeah. everyone will remember this as the Murray versus Mitchell showdown. We know who's going to win game seven. It's whichever one of those guys happens to go off a little bit better than the other one, right? All of the key moments late in games, I mean, every once in a while, Murray works in, you know, a nice pass to Jokic, and, and he hit a, a, a dagger three early in the series, I believe, in that overtime game. But are we seeing a shift not only with these particular franchises, but maybe a wider shift here, at least in the bubble, where it's like, you know, congratulations, all NBA centers. Uh, thanks for coming. But, you know, you're kind of just a lawn ornament, and, and the, the real action is taking place in the backcourt. Yeah, I mean, I think the stage was always set, in particular for Mitchell, real quick. Like, the stage was set heading into the bubble for him to just show out because they didn't have Bogdanovich. They would have to rely on his offensive ability a little bit more than they did during the regular season. And he's for sure come through and he's hitting pull up threes at a completely unsustainable rate, but has been terrific in a lot of other ways. But. For the Nuggets, I, I, you know, I don't think that it's an either or conversation or doesn't need to be. I mean, whenever we talk about the Nuggets, we we do not. I shouldn't say we I personally kind of discount them because they don't have that second guy. And it's just it's Jokic and he's a seven foot center. And we know from watching the NBA over the past few years that, you know, big men can't really generate or initiate offense, even ones who are as virtuosic as uh, as Jokic is. They can't really generate offense like a primary ball handling guard or wing. And so they always needed uh, Murray to take that leap forward. They gave him that max contract extension. I thought it was premature. And like, it's not that he'll take anything away from Jokic when he plays like this, but it's just a perfect complimentary piece for them to actually become title contenders. I mean, Murray has never made an all-star team. I think that obviously he's not going to shoot 60% from behind the three-point line for the rest of his career, but he is making a leap here. It, it's it's undeniable. And I think, you know, we're about to see him be on the cusp of perennial all-star status, and that just changes the whole trajectory for the Denver Nuggets. Yeah, it for sure does. And it also changes the trajectory for Jokic, I think, because it's a little bit of a zero-sum game, right? Uh, you know, if, if Murray stars ascending as far as it's going to, I think his is going to come back a little bit. And I don't think it's just about internal team dynamics. I think it's about where the bubble is taking the game. Remember, there was a lot of talk about, oh, it's a four-month layoff before they mm -hmm. picked up play here. So it's almost like it's a new season. And what we've seen in each of the last three new seasons is – faster games right um higher scoring even crazier mm -hmm. offensive efficiency and then even more dominance by perimeter playmakers that's been the story the last couple of years you look at some of these teams that are in those situations how did they prepare for the bubble like philly for example was looking to go away from its big lineups they didn't succeed in that all that well but that was sort of a you know a rejiggering a lot of the teams that did have success like san antonio uh, for example same deal they're trying to go smaller they're trying to go faster they're trying to put more perimeter playmakers and shooting on the court that was sort of like a trend heading into bubble ball if i'm a center right now michael i am so nervous i'm walking down the sidewalk with both hands in my pockets i'm making sure that like i'm calling home and i've got someone on the line with me I am seriously worried about you know my <laughs> extinction in this game right now because if you're looking ahead, the winner of this series will have, I think, by far the highest profile center in the final eight, right? I mean, if you look at 
know, Toronto can play big with Gasol, but, you know, he's not an all-star level player anymore. Uh Uh, Milwaukee's got Brooke Lopez. He's actually still very underrated, but he struggles in certain moments, and they're going to have to make some choices there if they go with Giannis at the five, I think, when it it really gets to, you know, key playoff time. You know, Boston, uh, Daniel Tice, I mean, I'm sure you've probably got a tattoo of one of his tattoos on your back, but, you know, he's Mm -hmm. not exactly an all-world level player. Miami's got Bam phenomenal talent not what we would really consider to be a, a traditional big-bodied center right it's it's more of a versatility look from him and in mm-hmm. the west i mean the lakers it's they play big just to save ad um the clippers they've got zubak he's had some nice moments he's not making an all-star team anytime soon um and houston is so disgusted with the concept of a center <laughs> that they're trying to just force that out of the sport right so you guys like Embiid, Carl Towns, uh, Rudy Gobert, who has played very well here. Jokic, who's had his moments here, by the way. Don't you sense there should be a little bit of paranoia? It's like you're excited that Mitchell and Murray are going so nuts, but aren't you also kind of looking around like, uh-oh, what does this really mean? Where is this bubble ball taking us? So I think you need to pump the brakes slightly with regards to Jokic. Let me read you Jokic's statistics in this playoff series. Okay, he's averaging 25.7 points, 7.2 rebounds, 5.7 assists. He's shooting 51% from the floor and 48% from behind the three-point line on seven threes per game. So oh, I'm with it. No, and Gobert's been really good too. You could argue Gobert's outplayed him, like honestly, in that series, right? Um, it's not to say they're not doing their jobs. I guess my question is, are they the ones driving the winning in the same way they did even two years ago? That's that's sort of my question. And okay. when when Murray gets the ball every single possession late, and he's you know doing these ridiculous pirouettes through three defenders and hitting these leaning three-pointers from like 30 feet. You're like, well, yeah, I mean, Jokic is out there. He's doing a nice job watching, but so are we. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a it's a great point. I don't know how sustainable all of this is for either Mitchell or Murray or whoever advances. Um, are the rims you know. bigger, Michael? I mean, is that what's happening here? <laughs> these guys, they can't miss. It's, it's really funny. You know, one other thought I had with Murray – and this is more of like, you know, uh, at home armchair psychology. But, you know, we talked about how Luca was such a natural fit for the bubble because he's just like this natural basketball prodigy. It's really all he cares about. And so all the side distractions that are hanging up, you know, some people are, are making them uncomfortable down here. It doesn't really apply to him because he just wants to go out there and play. I mean, Murray has detailed his childhood where, like, you know, he wasn't allowed to have a cell phone. His dad was, like, incredibly involved in his training. It was just basketball, you know, year-round and and mental preparation, the meditation aspect. Like, in Mm -hmm. hindsight, should we really have seen Murray bubble superstar coming? Like, it feels like his life was almost, you know, set up, you know, his, his training and his relationship with his father was, like, almost perfect setup for the life in the bubble. Yeah, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. We're going to try to go back and see why we didn't know that he was going to drop two 50-point bombs in this series. Um, I don't know. It's like I feel like I said earlier, I, I wrote this thing about Mitchell, and I thought that he was going to make a leap. But even he has succeeded what I thought was possible. And Murray has for sure just like blown my expectations out of the water and... If you just look at his statistics, one of the reasons why I was so hesitant to kind of crown Murray as even an all-star at any point in his career was just like the statistical plateau that we saw this season in just about every category. And so for him to 
enter the playoffs and he's shooting like twice as many even in the, from, compared to the postseason last year which he had some pretty memorable performances and key games against the Spurs and the Blazers like his pull-up threes uh, by volume are just like twice as high as they were in last year's postseason to say nothing of this regular season so he's just like he's embracing you know I wrote about him this morning I, I feel like he is the heir apparent to Steph Curry to uh, to Dame Lillard and in the way that those guys kind of were groundbreaking and vanguards to the three-point revolution like Jamal Murray and all the players who are like Jamal Murray uh, they've basically been able to be understudies throughout all of this and so there's really nothing to repress his shot selection like he can shoot from wherever he wants because guys like Dame and from and Steph have kind of taught coaches like okay give these this person the green light because it is so beneficial to offense when a guy can hit a pull-up three like Jamal Murray can so I just think it's really fascinating I can't wait to see game seven and I mean to be honest with you I was really hoping Mitchell would advance but I I just I want to see what the limit is here for Murray and I I really we can't lose at this point I mean it's just as viewers it's like very fair we're, we're winning either way. Um, just as a quick check here, remember Murray, seventh pick in the 2016 draft. He did get some of that possibly the next Steph type of buzz, but of course it was like diet Steph, poor man Steph. Everyone's trying to really distance him from those kinds of expectations because that was sort of like the mm-hmm. peak of Steph mania right when he was coming out, right? Yep. But yep. consider some of the players taken ahead of him. Dragon Bender by the Phoenix Suns. Woof. And then I think the one that we really should highlight... Buddy? Well, yeah, that, that one's bad too, but also Chris Dunn from the Minnesota mm. Timberwolves, right? I mean, I think it was a case there, Tom Thibodeau, wrong side of history, um, right? I mean, if, if they take Murray, now you've got Murray and Towns, both high-volume three-point shooters. All you need is three 3-and-D three guys, and you're set as a, you know, a top-five seed for the next 10 years. I mean, that is... The platform they've been trying to chase and, and, you know, mortgaging their entire franchise to get D'Angelo Russell, I would way rather have had just had Murray <laughs> than, uh, than anything else that they've done here over the last couple of years. So that one, I, I think, done over Murray doesn't get talked about enough with the dorks on basketball Twitter about mistakes. So come on, dorks, step up. Let's bring that back into the conversation here a little bit more. I'm going to give you a couple of head-to-head comparisons, Michael, and I just mm-hmm. want your quick you know, who would you take here? Uh, Obviously, you said Luka over Murray. I know you're going to take Tatum over Murray. What about Ben Simmons or Jamal Murray? Murray. What about Shea Gilgis-Alexander or Murray? Murray. What about Trey Young over Murray? Ooh, yeah. So when I was talking about the heir apparent, that was the number one name that was in my head was Trey. Um that's a really tough one just because Trey is I know you're like waiting to just leap down my throat as I'm speaking right now Ben but <laughs> why Trey... you, you think I'm the number one Trey Young hater in the world don't you <laughs> I do it's yes. not true but look I mean they're cut from similar class I would just take Murray I think he's he's a more sustainable piece right I mean, he's bigger. He's actually like a net average, I would say, right now on the defensive end, even though Denver's defense has been so terrible. He's not a big reason why. Um, So from that perspective, yeah. But like, and then like defensively, it's just 
yeah, it's like, which I just said, it's no question. Um, but then Trey Young, like the, the, just the passing ability that he has, I would really love to see it in a playoff setting. And I would love to see what he looks like when defenses are gearing to stop him and whether or not he can be as incandescent as he was this past season. I just um, hope you're patient. Could be a couple years there. Right? <laughs> well, let be, me ask, let be. me ask you this, Devin Booker or Jamal Murray? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I'm probably I'm going Booker. I mean, just made the All Star team. I think he's a little ahead and more advanced than than Murray. Um, that one's super close, and those two fan yeah. bases love to just fight to the death about that one. So <laughs> Nuggets fans are feeling great this week on that debate. Um, what about Ja Morant or Jamal Murray? I think I'm going Morant there. Um, just a little bit more on the upside. Just you know, he's he's significantly younger than Murray. Um, and I think had a better immediate impact than Murray, but that one's pretty I'm, close too. I, I, I'm going Murray. Um, I I love John Morant so much. I love watching him. He's incredible in so many different ways. I just think long term, when the dust settles a little bit and, and the excitement kind of fades from from like the new car smell, maybe I should say fades from John Morant, and we're kind of like okay. So he's still not shooting pull-up threes. Uh, where do we go from here? Like, there's a significant hitch in his game currently, which not to say he can't fix it, but we know that Jamal Murray is, like, his ceiling as a pull-up three shooter is, like, just, it's in the clouds. So that's just such a critical part of the game right now when it comes to guys who have the ball in their hands as much as Moran and Murray. So I'd, I'd give it to Murray right now, I think. How about uh, Emmanuel Moutier or Jamal Murray? <laughs> remember, remember when that was a conversation? <laughs> All right. I kid, I kid. Last one. Here's a weird one for you, uh, mm-hmm. and it's right at your heart. Uh, Jamal Murray or Jalen Brown? So this was an actual debate um, on draft night because Jalen was taken. Like a lot of Celtics fans really wanted Jamal Murray. Um, I go Jalen just because when you have two-way wings, it just lets you do so many different things with your lineups and your playing style. And I mean, it's really difficult to kind of disentangle like the fact that they already have Kemba Walker on the team, so they don't need a Jamal Murray. But like, I, I think it's just easier to build a winning team, two-way team with someone like Jalen than it is with someone like Jamal. So I'm, I'm going Jalen. And there's just a hint of bias in my answer. No, it's defensible. I do want to maybe just get a Photoshop of Jamal Murray in a green jersey just to see if that, like, steers you the other direction, you know, kind of gets your your senses uh, tingling Mm -hmm. a little bit. You would have avoided the entire Kyrie experience if you had taken Jamal Murray. That might be worth it alone, Michael, just something to ponder. So I think the point of this exercise, this comparative exercise here, is to – let everyone know, number one, there's an awful lot of 23 and under talent out there. All those guys who we were describing are 23 and under. And it's also to let everyone know, hey, it's time to give Jamal Murray his due. He's a player I was very impressed by in last year's playoffs. He was very up and down. I mean, there were some games where he was just completely terrible, frankly. But there was also other games where he was showing some flashes of what he's doing here. And it was, you know, last year's playoffs were an exercise in building his confidence and comfort. You could just tell from the messaging from Michael Malone. It was like, um, we've got to keep this guy just, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, locked in mentally and, and believing in himself because he's just that important. You fast forward to the bubble. 
and the other night, and Michael Malone, he tends to, uh, you know, get up, get up in front of the microphones and grandstand a little bit. I think he knows what he's doing. He realizes he's in a smaller market. They don't get as much media attention. He tries to have the, mm-hmm. the catchy sound bites regularly. He's not afraid to get after his team after a big loss. But he made a comment um, earlier in the series that Jamal Murray is becoming a superstar before our eyes on the biggest stage, right? That's a big-time quote from a coach because that puts a lot of expectations and pressure on a young player. And they're not going to go out there and just say that willy-nilly. You could tell that he meant it, and you could tell that he's feeling something special behind the scenes as well as what we're seeing on the court for him to kind of give that label. You're also not going to say that when you have a superstar-level player in Jokic on your roster, uh, Mm -hmm. unless it's true because you're not trying to ruffle feathers in any direction, right? So that one opened my eyes when Michael Malone said it. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly Murray lived up to it the very next game. I want to give you a couple of just crazy stats, um, real quick. Here's the list of players who have at least three 40 point games in the same first round playoff series throughout NBA history. Okay. Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray, both in this series, uh, Bernard King, (laughs) Michael Jordan twice and LeBron James. That's it. Right. And then if you want to talk about who are guys who have multiple career 50-point games in the playoffs, so any series, just multiple 50-point games, it's Michael Jordan, Wilt Chamberlain, Allen Iverson, Jerry West, pretty sure you've heard of those four, and then Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray in this particular series. So I, I bring those up to just provide context for how crazy their shooting exploits if you're watching these games and and you're just like us and you're wondering are the rims bigger like is there a magnet in the basketball how do these guys never missing this doesn't feel normal you're completely right history says it's not normal but I do also think it could be one of those things Michael where you know we talk about the asterisk on the bubble I think some of these scoring exploits could be subjected to that type of talk down the road, right? It could be like, look, it was just this crazy shooter's gym. These guys didn't have to travel. They got into incredible grooves. Uh, they were, you know, going against teams that didn't have their full complement of defenders because, you know, some guys were sick and some guys weren't there. And it was mm-hmm. just this crazy rush of scoring explosion. And that's why you saw these records set. I could see that developing, but I could also see, as I mentioned earlier, this being kind of our new normal where we're going out there and just watching guys get 45 on huge volumes of threes on a pretty consistent basis because that's what the new generation that's how they play that's how they've been trained and and prepared for and they're now starting to reach their prime and and ready to do it Uh, I'm just not sure do you want to make a pick here I know that's dangerous for game seven is who are you riding with I like the vibes I'm getting from Denver a little bit more. And I want to talk for two seconds about uh, late in last night's game when, uh, you know, Mike Conley is running a pick and roll with Rudy Gobert. He drives left, hits this really tough floater high off the glass. And then Nuggets call timeout. And they're walking towards uh, the bench, the the Jazz are. And... Rudy Gobert is like, I, I don't even know. He's upset about something and he's trying to instruct or t- say, he's trying to say something to Mike Conley. And Mike Conley is just like not having it. And then uh, Gobert eventually gets to the bench and he just like drop kicks a chair. And this was like in the fourth quarter of a tight game. And it was kind of just 
it was it was bizarre to see. Frankly, um, I don't know if if Gobert was frustrated or not, or, or if there's any more backstory that's been reported about this or whatever. Um, but I thought that that was just kind of weird to see because it was little, a competitive, little bit game. ominous. Yeah, well, yeah. look, I mean, I think that you would be um, a little bit concerned if you were a defensive player of the year and your team gave up 18 or 36 on three-point shooting. And again, like you're having pretty limited impact on that. Um, life is difficult for Rudy Gobert right now from this style of play. And I also think it, it that scene actually made me smile a little bit because my big interview with Rudy Gobert before the bubble started was him stressing to me about learning the value of patience and trying to like you know be a, <laughs> a more positive communicator and trying to build people up and like look we all have weak moments we've all been there wanting to kick a chair and frankly when Jamal Murray's scoring 50 on you it's okay to kick a chair you know throw a few things like that would really really be frustrating uh, as crazy as it sounds Michael I might be willing to bet against Murray being able to do this one more time. Something in the back of my mind says Utah's going to pull it together and take game seven. That's going to be my prediction. Um, we will go head to head on that. One of us will look like a genius. One of us will look like a fool on the next episode. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard to snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. All right, Michael, I think we should hop in here real quick to recap some of the stuff that happened 
with the shutdown. And I've got some questions here from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And Taylor from Idaho writes, in light of your debate about whether player, playing games was an effective way of sharing the player's message, it should be noted that I, someone who typically avoids social media and news, would not have learned about Brianna Taylor or Jacob Blake without NBA games to watch and the NBA players' um, involvement in those stories. Needless to say, as a white male and huge basketball and sports fan, the last few months have been eye-opening for me, even more so than during the Colin Kaepernick era. I never opposed Colin Kaepernick's right to speak out or kneel, but I was ignorant of his perspective and still may have been somewhat skeptical of his message without having seen the unfortunate examples of racial injustice this year. It is also sobering that I've had conversations with my new father-in-law, who is black and an army veteran, who's exclaiming through a lot of this, I lived through it. So I like that perspective from Taylor, Michael, because, you know, you and I, we tend to live in the weeds, right? Where our takes are influenced by obsessive coverage uh, and, uh, you know, deep involvement in every aspect of what the NBA is trying to do here. I think they're influenced by being in a Twitter bubble of a whole bunch of people who follow this stuff really carefully and um, have very strong and passionate takes about that. And I guess what Taylor is saying, he's not a casual sports fan, but he is just a casual news consumer. And the NBA players have brought this onto his radar. I don't think Taylor's the only one. And I do think when you had that you know, shutdown on Wednesday, and it was it was confusing in the moment. There's a lot of debate. Is this a boycott? Is this a strike? Is mm-hmm. this a protest? Are they willing to sit out for multiple games? Are they willing to be sanctioned by the league? Is this actually a situation where the the league and the players are kind of almost protesting in tandem? You know, they're they're trying to come to these resolutions, and um, you know, they're trying to make change uh, together with local governing bodies, either in Wisconsin or I guess just, you know, nationally trying to set up polling stations and and those kinds of things. Um, It was not totally clear how to categorize or label what the Milwaukee Bucks did in in that moment. However, what everybody knew and all news media outlets realized instantly was that it was super different, super important and worthy of coverage, right? So, um, to me, that's the biggest step back when people look at the last three days. I know there's going to be some people who said, well, what was the point of it? Um, why did they do this? They raised a lot of conversation and attention here, no matter what. I think to me that is indisputable. And I think that it was good that Taylor emailed in to let us know that uh, because, uh, you know, it, that can get lost in all these, like, you know, very specific debates about what word do we cause it or are they really making a difference? I mean, I think to me, that is a major takeaway here. They're, they are using that quote unquote platform. Everyone loves to use that phrase. They are using it and it is working. You know, days later from Wednesday's shutdown, I still personally have so many mixed feelings about it. I think I'm, 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 I'm generally pro that they did it. First of all, and I think it was wonderful. And I think that we are seeing like tangible short term uh, action from like, for example, the Wisconsin legislature has not met to vote on police reform acts um, uh, since April. And that was before George Floyd was killed and they have not met since. And so they are meeting reportedly today um, to discuss these issues and to discuss other issues going on in that state with regards Michael, to social I mean, that's, justice. Isn't that so embarrassing, getting guilt-tripped into doing your job? I mean, come on. 
Yeah, 100%. And so that, you know, I don't think... Look, 2 plus 2 equals 4. If the Milwaukee Bucks did not uh, sit out that game on Wednesday, do we honestly think that the Wisconsin legislature would magically come back after a four or five month absence or whatever it was to to convene and talk about police reform like because you can't tell me that that did not impact it um so from that perspective i i think that it was like meaningful just in an actionable way and a measurable way um, so what did you think about their three um, their three deal points, if you want to call it that? Sure. Obviously, they started the Social Justice Coalition. They mm-hmm. they basically continued their efforts to use arenas as polling places, and you saw some very high-profile arenas join that cause. Uh, Madison Square Garden, Staples Center, the Forum in Inglewood, um, and that that's in addition to other arenas in Houston and Salt Lake City that were sort of already you know trending that direction, and others too, by the way, uh, prior to this. And then the third was, you know, more advertising around the voting, um, you know, get out the vote uh, before the November election. Um, These are things that LeBron in particular has been pushing for a while. And you could even see new vote signs within the arena, kind of on the backdrop of games. Was this enough? You you mentioned mixed feelings, Michael. Is that where the mixed feelings come from? Because maybe these are good, but you wanted more? Um, Or or what did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean... Part of it is that. Part of it is you always want more. Um, part of it is a frustration with like just how we frame all of this in that these are NBA players, right? And so we look to them to be the leads on social justice issues. And we look to them to push those who actually have economic and political power um, to leverage those tools that they have to make change. And I'm talking about the billionaire governors and owners in the NBA. And so why aren't we just being more critical from the jump at those people and those people who have the the money and the clout and everything to like, look, like we talked about this on the last, I can't remember if we talked about this when we were recording or if we were offline, but the fact that there was the $300 million initiative that the owners had over 10 years, that's $1 million uh, a year per owner, per ownership group. Um, that's like nothing. And so if you are the players, you should be pushing for more because you're making this huge sacrifice going down there and playing games and, and trying to do your best to, to utilize your platform, being away from your family um, during such a difficult time. So I just think kind of the framing is what, what frustrates me a little bit. Um, I do think that you know, opening up the polling places and the stadiums and, uh, you know, convincing those who own those stadiums to do so is a very good thing. I'm curious to see what exactly the social justice initiative that was the first bullet point in the NBA's uh, and MBPA's email out to uh, our press release. Uh, I'm curious to see what the effects are of that um, and what specifically it will accomplish. But I mean, Look, like the fact that the Bucks, uh, if they did not sit out, then, you know, there were other polling places that would not have opened is both sad and hopeful at the exact same time. So that's kind of where I come from when I say I just have mixed feelings about the whole thing. For sure. Look, I think a lot of people wanted the Bucks action to be like the biggest moment in sports labor history. And mm-hmm. that's really not what it was. As we came to find out over the next couple of days, it was George Hill not feeling comfortable playing. 
mm-hmm. saying that he wasn't going to play. Then Sterling Brown saying, you know what? I agree. I don't feel comfortable playing. And then Giannis hearing those guys say that. And you know what? I'm going to have your back because I'm the team leader. So I'm not going to play. The whole team decides not to play in the hours or minutes before their game. They're probably thinking we'll take a forfeit. We're up 3-1 in the series and we'll just come back and play on Friday. And uh, of course, that's not how it went. We saw all sorts of games canceled and postponed across four different sports. And I'm sure that kind of blew their mind. I think what came out over the next couple of days was a classic case of pragmatism, right? You have LeBron and Obama and Michael Jordan, some of the most pragmatic people that we've ever seen, uh, you know, in terms of trying to like, you know, create some tangible solution mm. um, rather than, you know, just protest for protest's sake. Those voices and, and figures kind of rise in the headlines and they put together a compromise that I think actually benefits both sides. The players can say, hey, we did something. This wasn't just disorganized. This wasn't a one-off. Um, you know, we made a statement. We're getting some action. The owners came out proving to some degree that they've got the players back. And of course, there's been some skepticism from players, I believe, including Jalen Brown saying, hey, we still want to see follow through. And that's mm-hmm. completely uh, understandable and is an important part of their messaging. And I'm glad they're saying that. Uh, but you also saw like the league itself, you know, able to do what they set out to do, um, which is obviously playing in the bubble while also juggling another major issue and keeping it front of mind. And again, getting days and days worth of media coverage out of that. I think that their their end up their end solution wound up, you know, being fairly productive. There was a lot of ways this could have gone wrong. I mean, if this had dragged for a week or two weeks, if this had led to a, you know, a shutdown of the bubble and then potentially a lockout in the future, I think that that would have done significantly more damage to their cause than people are, are maybe willing to think about uh, just because those players would be scattered around the country and they would not be capable of being in the news day after day after day for um, you know their their day jobs as athletes and so can uh, I can I push back two quick two seconds yeah, Ben please so okay I, I get what that that point I think that just because there would not be games happening I personally think that that is a very loud and powerful reminder of the whole point of this, which is to draw attention to racial injustice and social inequality uh, in this country, right? So you're like, why isn't the NBA, why aren't NBA games happening right now that were supposed to be happening, that are supposed to be, my television's telling me that a game was supposed to be scheduled tonight. There is no game. Why is that? So even though players aren't specifically speaking out, and I do think that there are other forms and venues and, and avenues for players to speak out, even if they were not necessarily in a post-game press conference or something like that, there are many ways for them to to convey a message. Um, I do think that uh, not playing would have also been a way to uh, draw attention to like the greater entire point of what we're all talking about here. Oh, so, and they did, but to me, there's a timeline on that, right? I mean, if you're saying we're out of the bubble, that's a giant story for multiple weeks, right? But the players mm-hmm. disperse, they go back to their home markets, they get back to their normal lives, they spend time with their families, they get back into their workout routines, and they wait. And the owners say, well, you shut down this bubble we spent more than $100 million on, you can kiss away next season. We're changing the math on this. We're not doing 50-50 anymore, right? You well, know, no, no. So, so, yeah, real quick, like, I think these are two different conversations. So I agree with you 100% that it would be a disaster in terms of the NBA's labor relationship between the players and the owners. Well, I yeah. think that that... 
And no, I, go ahead. I, I think go ahead. it's related because I think that, you know, if that relationship is damaged, and I think that's why they came off looking like partners this week, because if that right. relationship is damaged, they're not able to play the games. They're not able to even create a platform for next season. And now mm-hmm. these guys are in a position where they don't have as strong of a joint ability to get out their messaging on these things. And also with the timing going towards the election, like I think having LeBron and Jalen Brown and uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, these kind of key figures telling people to vote for the next Doc Rivers, Doc yeah. Rivers you know, for the next, um, you know, month and a half. That's kind of the NBA's best case scenario to really impact the, the country right now. Right. I mean, there's a lot of short term pressure to kind of keep um, their ability to deliver, uh, you know, visible messages, uh, you know, as good as it can be. And I'm sure that was weighing on all of these guys' decisions too. But, you know, LeBron kind of put it this way, you know, if they go home, certain guys are going to get muted. I think that's completely true. I think a player like Jalen Brown's a great example. I mean, he is not a top 10 or 15 star in the league in terms of name recognition, right? Boston fans um, love him. And I think that, you know, basketball Twitter really respects like what he's going to mean for the next 10 years of the sport, two-way wing, interchangeable, fits exactly how the game is going. He's just progressed constantly year after year. But the casual fan doesn't know who he is. Um, He got some attention for leading those protests in Atlanta before we got down here. That probably put him onto the stage a little bit, but he's been using the stage here better than almost anyone. If he goes back and is no longer Jalen Brown of the Boston Celtics chasing a title, he is now Jalen Brown thinker at his home, and there's no NBA for 18 months. The world does not care about Jalen Brown nearly as much as it does right now. I think unfor- that's unfortunate, but true. And I think that you know these guys, if you're out of sight, out of mind for a month or two months without playing games, you're right back to the country's back burner. I think, unfortunately, that's just kind of how our society works. It's not fair. It's not how I uh, would want it, but I just think that's a fact. Okay, so I... I- I think generally I agree with you on the Jalen Brown thing. I will say, as you mentioned, when he organized that 15-hour drive down to Atlanta and then organized the march, um, that was a pretty big news story. That was like he went on CNN, uh, did an interview there. He and this, this was with before games were were occurring. So um, I think that he would still be able to draw attention to his efforts in protest. But I also want to say. Circling back to Jamal Murray for two seconds, because we didn't really get to talk about his post game, uh, uh, his post game interview with Jared Greenberg, uh, which was like breathtaking to me. It like made my eyes well. I was not expecting it. I've never seen an athlete really, or I can't think or remember of an athlete doing what he did. I mean, I just want to really quickly kind of frame it like, that was the biggest game of his entire life. It's an elimination game, game six. He scores 50 points, um, and he completely deflects praise, and he is an emotional wreck after that game. And the thought of victory and success is miles from his mind. He's not even thinking about the, the, like the W. It was like, so when I see stuff like that, I think that there is significant value in playing the games because... It was almost like to me that Jamal Murray was playing to win. Of course, that's what he's been born to do. But he's also playing to have the opportunity to do that interview, to have a camera zoom in on his sneakers that are etched with George George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's faces and to just basically encourage empathy in the millions of people who are watching. 
So I thought that that was very powerful, and something like that is not possible if the season is canceled. Brilliantly said. Um, at the same time, should he have had to do that interview? I I felt a lot of empathy for him. Um, mm. Get the cameras off this guy, you know, like let him have a moment. That and and even the shot of the the tunnel hallway. I didn't feel super comfortable watching that either. I mean, ultimately, like those are going to be such memorable shots, and I understand there's absolutely news value in it. And so, I think ultimately, you do have to do the interview as long as he's not walking off. You know, and I thought Jerry Greenberg handled it as well as anyone could have handled it. Um, but oh man, I felt for him. You know, if there was ever a time where it's like, all right, you can have a pass, go back to the locker room, and kind of compose yourself. That was a moment. Um, very well said on all that, Michael. I do want to actually ask you, I, I mentioned Jalen Brown and the Celtics um, part mm-hmm. of that um, here briefly. We got a question from Michael, not you. He says, this is for the pod and his Boston Celtics green sympathies. I just want to express how pleased I am about how far the Celtics organization has come in understanding and trying to support the talent it depends on. There's more work to do but I don't have many complaints right now. I am too young to remember the Celtics and their more conspicuous issues with race. I only came to know about it through the consequences of the KG courtship when I came of age, basketball and media-wise. I'm glad to be proud of my organization and glad I don't have to do any of the hoop jumping to rationalize my affection for other New England sports franchises. So, Michael, Mm. I mean, clearly there's a a long history there. I mean, dating back to Bill Russell, maybe even before that. Um, But... I have been really impressed with how the Celtics have like gotten right behind Jalen Brown. You see it with um, you know, their Twitter messaging immediately following uh, the Bucks' decision, you know, putting out statements of support. Like they were one of the very first to do it. Um, you heard it in terms of allowing their players to talk about the idea of a walkout themselves. You know, Marcus Smart. I mean, there was no pushback that I saw from coaching or, or management trying to like, hey guys, you know, simmer down, like don't, don't uh, you know, don't bother people. You know, we've seen that kind of stuff in the past from uh, other organizations mm-hmm. when players maybe, you know, get a little bit too close to the third rail. Are we seeing, is Boston kind of emblematic of a, of a shift in philosophy here within the NBA at large? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I struggle to like answer this question. I, I, I agree and acknowledge everything that you said, and I have nothing like critical in particular to say about um, to say about the Celtics organization. I think that as you outlined, they've handled so much of this admirably. Um, starting with, I mean, right before there was that commercial that played the Black Lives Matter commercial where. Um, uh, Wick Rosbeck, owner for the Celtics, says Black Lives Matter in front of a camera, and people can say that that's nothing. But not Dude, every five owner is years willing ago, to do that. Five years not ago, exactly. Is that happening? That, I mean, no chance. Absolutely yeah. not. Absolutely not. So, so stuff like that, you know, you can be cynical and call that performative. Um, I'm not one of those people. I think that that is powerful when an owner goes in front of a camera and says something like that. Um, that is that is progress. Um, I think like, yeah, I, it's it's I, I don't really think that the Boston Celtics and it's this is like a whole different conversation that I don't really want. I'm not really like prepared to get into right now, but like Boston's history with race and the Celtics history with um, being pseudo progressive in a lot of ways. You know, they 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 hired they they had the first uh, black player in the NBA. They uh, hired. Uh, the first black coach, Bill Russell, in uh, across all four 
uh, professional sports in North America. Um, and then there's all this stuff about, you know, their fans and the city of Boston throughout the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, you know, you could argue 90s right now. Um, and so it's a whole, you know, tangled conversation that's very complex for a lot of different reasons, but just strictly keeping it to how the Boston Celtics organization has behaved over the past six months or so, even maybe even longer than that. I think it's been it's been great. I have nothing bad to say. Yeah, I, I, it jumps out to me, I guess, because for better or worse, I think that reputation, that label mm-hmm. that people apply to Boston or to Boston sports has been stuck to the Celtics as well over the years. Um, having gone to a few playoff games there, it's a passionate crowd. Um, there was definitely some moments they crossed the line with LeBron, like just kind of point blank oh, period. no question. No question. No and question. that wasn't that long ago when those guys were really in the most heated moments. So to see their messaging, you know, knowing where some of their fans' heads were at, you know, not, not even a decade ago, um, I'm sure they're getting some level of blowback uh, along they the do. way. Whether no, they, I, hey, they do. Um, you can look at the Instagram comments on some of these posts, and it's like despicable stuff. And, you know, I'm from Boston, right outside of Boston, grew up with this, and so I've seen it firsthand my whole life, and it sucks. <laughs> but um, again, strictly speaking about the Celtics organization and their their like n- not willing, even as just like a, a business that obviously needs to um, bend sometimes or has bent in the past to the wills of fans. Like they're clearly not doing that right now. So to that, I say like hats off, and I hope that that continues going forward. Uh, well said. All right, let's uh, hop back real quick to a couple of different playoff topics. We want to wrap up. Um, now, Michael, mm-hmm. since we last spoke, um, this was maybe a, a week or so ago, you had predicted the Blazers in six. And we've what? been hearing from a lot of Southern California <laughs> fans about that pick. And I believe you may have given them the kiss of death. We got a l- we got very wrapped up in the Lakers' shortcomings in game one. Both of us did. Um, since that podcast, the Lakers ran off four straight wins Lillard got injured. The Blazers went home with uh, looked to me like a lake full of wine on their team plane with Mello and CJ McCollum <laughs> both emerging, which is giant bottles of wine to celebrate the end. Um, the Lakers fans are coming for you personally. Um, how do you explain their their turning fortune in that particular series? Um, at what moment did you give up on Portland? Was it the Lillard injury? And then can you just quickly tell me how many teams you think are playing better than the Lakers are right now because I think the Lakers fans are feeling like we're back to the number one seed we've got LeBron and AD we're the best team the top contender in the entire league and I imagine um, you're not buying all that I mean you know once Zach Collins went down it's just that changes everything you got to put an asterisk on the series I don't know what to (laughs) tell you (laughs) the AD stopper is that what you're saying exactly um no, I mean, yeah, obviously, uh, this did not go as I thought it would. Um, I was a little foolish. I mean, I I feel like in defense of myself, I no, was going... in defense of yourself, it was a take. It's okay to have takes. I'm not going to shame you for having takes here. In fact, I really enjoyed it, and you made me think. You were luring me in. You were getting me convinced, so I don't apologize for it. Just, I mean, focus on what you thought L.A. did in games two to five. No, I mean... LeBron woke up and was phenomenal. I think even more importantly, AD woke up 
And, you know, even in games where the Lakers don't have their outside shooting going in and the three-point shots just aren't falling, like, AD, when... And he he shot just the crap out of the ball from the mid-range in this series, and I thought that that was a humongous factor in their victory because when he has that shot going, it is so back-breaking because you, you want him to take those shots, right? Like, you want anyone really to take a contested 18 footer ad will take those all day and when he's shooting like 68 percent from those spots on the floor you can just pack it up and go home because you have no chance and so you know he was he was making those shots throughout the series after game one uh his defense went to just like I'm uh, no disrespect to Giannis, but I thought that AD was the defensive player of the year, and he got slept on in the narrative conversations down the stretch here. Um, he was just uh, lights out defensively, just a total total animal. Um, yeah, can I hop uh, in on on that point? Because sure. look, both LeBron and AD were putting up insane stat lines, and they were picking on players who were just not right. equipped mentally, emotionally, physically anything to stop them right yes but to me the story of the turnaround was them cranking their defense way up and I actually thought both the Lakers and the Clippers did that as their series unfolded I mean Luka was torching the Clippers for a lot of that series but in the last couple of games uh, the Clippers win big because they are flying around on the defensive rotations right they are they are getting out to every shooter they are trying to challenge shots same deal with the Lakers I actually thought the signature play of the Lakers' first-round series victory was when they blocked three jump shots in five seconds um, to, you know, basically to snuff out a possession. I mean, you basically mm-hmm. never see that. It was multiple extra effort plays, guys, um, you know, getting out to their spot, covering for each other, um, and you know, maintaining high energy throughout possessions. That's sort of LA's, you know, baseline championship formula like if the lakers want to win this thing they have to be an elite defense like in my mind because i just don't think they have enough weapons and firepower outside of the two stars like they have to kind of control tempo force turnovers get easy scores in transition like that's sort of how they have to do it and you know they they pass that test against portland the tests are going to get harder Uh, there's no question but Mm -hmm. um, the the matchups you know potentially against houston is going to make life a lot more difficult on that front but that was, to me, the, the biggest standout. And, I, and in part because, look, there hasn't been a lot of defense played in the bubble in general. Like, a lot of the teams that got invited down here early just did not care about it. I mean, remember back to the Pelicans and, like, what they were doing on the court? So mm. to see guys actually make five defensive rotations in a row and, and uh, you know, block some jump shots and all that, uh, you know, it made, me, uh, it made me smile, Michael. You know, it's so funny, like, in that, when we try to uh, analyze um, postseason series and, like, we always talk about adjustments and what is this team going to do from a game, well, after a game one loss, what are they going to, and, like, what the Lakers essentially did was play harder. I mean, like, there was a no, game. Michael, was- <laughs> no, 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 use the, use the official terminology, please. They flipped a switch. Okay, yes, of course. Um, they definitely flipped a switch. You, you know, you have your uh, signature play, signature sequence of that series. Mine is watching AD, like, dive for a loose ball, corral it, turn, like, sit up uh, with a bunch of Blazers around him, fire this perfect pass to LeBron, and then they got, like, a dunk or a layup from someone else on the other end. Like, that's those are the type of possessions that we just, they were not doing... 
before the playoffs began in the bubble, like not even close. And then in game one, also not even close. So I, I think that, you know, CJ was not healthy. Uh, Dame obviously was not healthy for the whole series. Zach Collins, my boy, the difference maker. Um, I'm partially joking. I do not think that if he was around that they would have won, but I do think that when he goes down and the domino effect is we have to play Yusuf Nurkic and Hassan Whiteside at the same time, that it is just completely devastating. Um, yeah, but I don't want to take... was on fumes too. I mean, look, yeah. they ran out of oh, gas 100%, right on schedule. 100%, 100%. And, and yeah. that was predictable. It could happen. You know, if Portland was going to win that series, they were going to have to, like, just get up and jump on them early. They did in game one, and they just kind of ran out of gas down the stretch. No shame to Portland for losing. No shame to you for picking them, Michael. Um, Let's switch gears here real quick. When we were discussing Celtics Sixers, we really, I think, you know, both of us kind of injured our backs um, just dumping dirt on the Sixers' grave. I mean, it was a real um, heavy <laughs> lift by us, I would say. I mean, we really got some digs in there. It was delightful. What we didn't do so much was focus on Boston's success. Um, I can take the blame for that one. Uh, I hate giving credit where credit mm. is due. It bothers me. Mm. So Boston sweeps Philly. They come out in game one over Toronto and look – uh, quite dominant from the start. I mean, they're, they're just really bombing away from threes, getting whatever shots they want. And Toronto just, they didn't have it in game one. They they need to, uh, you know, do a little bit of soul searching. Their team seemed down. They still seem impacted uh, by the Jacob Blake situation for sure. I mean, just kind of being in the in the room for some of their post-game interviews, guys didn't seem right. Uh, not an excuse, just a fact. That's, that's kind of, they were not mentally where they needed to be, uh, you know, before, during, and after that game. Um, you know, as Nick Nurse said, they got their butt kicked. They weren't tough enough, fast enough, uh, smart enough, good enough, any of those words um, to keep up with uh, with Boston. But what do you view as kind of the key drivers here of Boston's early playoff success? I mean, they're they're five and zero. They're in the driver's seat and in the second round series that everybody's been looking forward to. Um, they're making my Raptors in five pick look not so good, Michael. Uh, we'll see. I'm not giving up on it yet. Um, but uh, what do you to whom do you give the credit? Um, for the Celtics uh, playoff success. Yeah, I mean, I I don't like to get too ahead of myself when it comes to talking about the Celtics because I, I clearly have this jinxing power um, inside of me somewhere. So I'm not going to just go out and say that the Celtics are going to sweep this series or the Celtics are going to five or whatever. Um, You're not going to say it, but you just did, Michael. You just kind of <laughs> did put it out there, didn't you? Um, but... Look, to answer your question, like, the Celtics, none of this is that surprising to me at all. Um, they came into the bubble as one of the best teams in the NBA. They completely dismantled the Philadelphia 76ers um, in so many different ways on both ends. Um, they outcoached them. They out-executed them. They had more talent top to bottom. Um, Tatum emerged as the best player in that series, which is a huge factor going forward. He's the best player um, by a wide margin, I think, in this series um, against the Raptors. He is the best player in this series, and I would love for Pascal Siakam to check in for work um, because mm-hmm. game one didn't happen. I think if you had rewound and asked me who's the best player in this series in January, I would have guessed Siakam. And game one, not the case. Uh, Siakam can play better. Uh, Tatum mm-hmm. maybe can come back to earth a little bit. I guess he started slow, but um, I'm with you. Tatum is the best player in this series. Yeah, Tatum is 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 extremely good. Um, 
And I think one of the more interesting parts of his game and his impact uh, uh, in this particular matchup is just, and we've seen it in the past, but Tatum defensively, Brad Stevens loves to put him on uh, the opposing point guard. And that way Tatum can then switch pick and rolls. Um, He can get up and pressure guys like Kyle Lowry, who, you know, they love to hit the pull-up three. Uh, Tatum has arms that are long enough to take that shot away, and he's quick enough to recover and not get blown by. So he's just this, like, secret weapon at the head of Boston's defense in these types of matchups. And we've seen it. You know, I think the first time I ever saw it deployed was, and I could be wrong about this, but what stands out is last year against the Indiana Pacers and the Boston Celtics swept them in the first round. And Tatum was uh, started out on Darren Collison in that series and was just like a total monster disrupting everything that the Pacers wanted to do. That has carried over to this season. That has carried over to this series. Um, so that's just like a minor little wrinkle that people should look out for. But then beyond that, like Boston is just really, really basically impossible to beat when guys like Marcus Smart and Brad Wanamaker are just like drilling threes, which they are capable of. I don't know if they will continue to hit threes quite like they did. Um, But yeah, I mean, I could go on and on about different aspects of this team and why they're very good on both ends. But when you also just bottom line, have the best player in the series and someone who can still get whatever shot he wants against a really great defense. I mean, good luck to you. Good luck. Don't count these rappers out, Michael. I'm a big time. I'm not. I'm not. I'm a big I'm time not. rappers believer. Everybody knows that about me. No, I kid. I kid. I'm, I'm hopping on their bandwagon for the first time <laughs> ever in the history of open floor. Um, I look. They just were not right uh, in game one, and they will not play worse than that during the series. This is a focused, smart, um, versatile, long team. Boston, I don't think is going to shoot as well as it did in game one. And Toronto can't really execute worse offensively than they did in game one. I mean, it would have been a real bloodbath if Serge Ibaka didn't kind of come out of mm. nowhere with what he did. Um, but look, Van Vliet's better than that. If he's injured, that's a big problem, right? Um, Lowry's better than that. They have a lot of pieces. Siakam's way better than he showed him. Mean, he was smoking layups. I mean, there was just so many different um, moments of just pure frustration for Raptors fans in that game. And I, I think it's going to balance out a little bit. I still expect this to be a long series. This sweep talk that you and the Celtics fans are trying to oh, bring in Jesus. is just crazy. Don't even. <laughs> don't even right now. I did yeah. not say that. I know. I'm messing with you. All right. Last topic here, Michael. We have to say goodbye to our sweet prince, uh, Luka Doncic. The Dallas Mavericks were eliminated by the LA Clippers in game six. Luka went nuts again, 38 points, um, but it, it just wasn't enough. Kawhi Leonard kind of in control of that game. The Clippers defense, as I mentioned, started to finally exert itself later in that series to take control of that series. Um, Dallas runs out of gas a little bit with uh, Porzingis getting injured. Um, I think that was obviously a, a changing moment they're going to look back on in addition to his ejection early in the series. They left a little bit on the table. I think that was sort of the, the feeling I got from Rick Carlisle. Some level of regret about, mm-hmm. hey, maybe the series in an alternate universe could have gone differently. But at the same time, their message was exactly what you expect. 
optimism for next year, trying to build a championship-ready roster around Luka. Luka comes out and says his goal for next season is to win a title because, of course, he did. Luka's the best. Um, And he also laid out a little bit about what he wants to add to his game. He said his primary work will be on, you know, trying to improve his shooting, um, which, as we've discussed before, you know, his his three-point percentage is, you know, off of even LeBron or Kawhi. Um, you know, or, or James Harden and, and well below you know, the real high volume three point shooting guys like, you know, Steph Curry or, or Clay right. Thompson or Kevin Durant. So it's an obvious point uh, for him to want to uh, to focus on. Right. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that's kind of what his his own personal view of like the next steps for world domination. And I wrote this a little bit uh, in my newsletter. People can check that out this week. So what did you make of Luca's closing arguments here uh, for where he stands? Um you know, in, uh, in in the kind of the hierarchy? And then what specific improvements do you want to see from Luca heading into next year? I mean, Luca's almost perfect, uh, at, at, like, as a basketball player. I think there are some things you'd like to see just athletically that aren't going to happen, and that's perfectly fine. He still can get to the basket whenever he wants. He can still finish at a LeBronian rate uh around the rim uh which is just a testament to his touch i mean i agree with him when it comes to the the three-point shooting he needs to be a better more accurate outside shooter um he takes a lot of step back threes and that's a wonderful shot to just generate one of the most accurate one of the most efficient options in basketball if it's not going in you know um you know, over 30% of the time, then it's not the best option. My suggestion on that would be to dribble down one step inside the three-point line and then step back behind the three-point line rather than starting two steps behind the three-point line and stepping back to three steps behind the three-point line. Just a a subtle adjustment, I think, could really change things for Luca because... Uh, it's not the nature of the shot; it's the location of the shot that kills his uh, his shot selection, his efficiency numbers. He just falls in love with the the deep bomb, and I get it because that's his mentality. Like he's wired like Lillard, you know, he's wired like you know Curry and these other guys. He just doesn't quite have that shot. He just needs to build up to it a little bit. Ben, that's why they pay you the big bucks. Great point. I mean, scoot in, Luca. <laughs> this exactly. is your assistant coach talking. <laughs> um, besides that, like, I, I, like honestly, you know, I guess like the basics are just like more awareness off the ball on defense, and you know, I think his on-ball defense is actually pretty solid. He gets up out of his position a little bit, but I think that those that happens more later in games when. He's probably exhausted because he carries the offense when he's on the floor. Um, and then, like, the last thing I'll just say is, like, stronger ankles. That's Because that's really been the only physical problem that he's faced uh, in his career. And I, I believe he had, like, a serious ankle injury this season that kind of flared up on a couple occasions. And then, obviously, in this series, there was the whole drama with Marcus Morris and stepping on his ankle and then before that he had it twisted before the 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 epic um uh game where he hit the buzzer beater so just like get stronger ankles and i think that that sounds silly but if you just like read about how steph curry you know altered his balance and all of this these things to prevent himself from having recurring ankle injuries luca could you know take a page out of curry's book for sure great suggestions i would just um 
encourage him to work on his restraint too. You know, I think that whether it's the shot selection, whether it's some of his decision-making with some crazy passes, and he got better at that over the course of the bubble. But when he first started the bubble, he was flinging some stuff around the gym that was making me just a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, Also, the interactions with the officials and Mm. the interactions with the Marcus Morrises of the world. Uh, Just Mm -hmm. a little bit more restraint. LeBron is the model here, Luca. You can whine a lot to the officials, right? You're going to take physical punishing treatment from opponents. Um, You know, you are going to want to have, uh, you know, play fast and loose because you're more talented than everyone else and you're going to feel comfortable in those moments. And you're going to want to take every single shot because you can create it and because, you know, you're the hero of your own story in your mind and you're the hero of an awful lot of people's stories as well. So these are natural um, inclinations for a player like him. But just a little more restraint, I think, would go a long way. He made the comment about Morris, you know, I don't want to deal with players mm. like this. You know, Luca, newsflash, buddy. Like, they're going to be sending the, the Marcus Morrises at you for the next oh, 10 yeah. years straight, right? So you can control how you respond. You can control, um, you know, how you work the officials before, during, and after those situations. I don't want to see you jumping up off the hardwood ready to punch somebody. You're what, better than that. What, what did LeBron say back in the day with Deshaun Stevenson? It was like... Um, uh, it would be like Jay-Z responding to a diss from Soldier Boy. <laughs> right, Just right, like right. all time, just all time. Like, Luca, come on, you're better than that. Yeah, so that's basically like Luke is Drake and Marcus Morris is you in this analogy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how good of a rapper you are, Michael. But yeah, point taken. So just stay away from that nonsense stuff. You know, he, he's getting technical fouls in playoff games. Don't get those. Like, just... You know, it's it's a bad look all around. You're putting yourself at risk of ejection, as we saw with Porzingis. And, um, but more importantly, it's just he's such an incredible commander of the game when he's locked in. We saw it in these late-game playoff moments. I mean, taking it right at Kawhi, taking it right at Paul George, making Reggie Jackson consider quitting the sport. I mean, we had a lot of moments there from Luka where he was just in complete command. That's the part where you kind of want to positively reinforce it and be like, look, just continue doing this. And the stuff where he's losing his mind at the refs and, you know, upset about Marcus Morris and justifiably so, like, you know, but you have to control that reaction. You have to stay level headed. And he did a pretty good job with that. But I just think it's, you know, something that he's going to need to continue to work on uh, because ultimately, like his own self-confidence is only getting bigger here as he continues to extend his dominance. We don't want that expressed in a negative way where, you know, he's constantly reacting to people who are trying to take him down those are my thoughts um luca top three mvp finisher next year yes or no yes luca mvp next year yes or no um yes wow wow you heard it here first guys he's gonna go from rookie of the year to most improved player he should win that award this year if he doesn't i'm gonna be very upset to MVP. Talk about an ascent, Michael. That sounds pretty good. All right, guys, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, you can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate or review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. Michael, what have you been up to? What have you been writing lately? Man, uh, too much to go over. I mean, as I mentioned on this episode, um, wrote something about Jamal Murray this morning up on uh, up on GQ.com. And then I also wrote this piece about Kemba Walker and how the Celtics used double screens to get him off for 538. So check those out. 
Awesome. I will be reading those ASAP. Guys, you can uh, follow me on Instagram, at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter, at Ben.Golliver. Check out the newsletter. Check out the book. The link to it uh, on Amazon is now in my Twitter bio. I would appreciate it if you guys went out there and supported me on that uh, very much. And also, of course, continue to follow all the NBA coverage at WashingtonPost.com slash sports. All right, Michael, until later this week when we should have the final eight set and we can dig into these second round matchups even more deeply than we already did today, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.